You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 1st of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Ukraine prepares for a cold, dark winter. Israelis vote in their 57th general election in the last six weeks, or whatever it is we're up to now, and Collins Dictionary reveals an all-too-appropriate word of the year for 2022. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Aliona Flivko and Ivor Gaber will discuss all the day's big stories. And Monocle's editorial director Tyler Brulé meets Semaphore co-founder Justin Smith. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Aliona Hlivko, Senior Consultant at Atticus Partners and former Regional MP in Ukraine, and Ivor Geber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex. Hello to you both. Good evening. Hello, Andrew. Uh, we will be starting in Aliona's home country of Ukraine, largish swaths of which are presently without reliable water or electricity, following a Russian missile barrage targeted at civilian energy infrastructure. In somewhat better news for Ukraine, Ukrainian grain continues to leave Black Sea ports despite Russia's flouncing from the Turkey-brokered agreement which guaranteed the safety of such exports. Both the missile strikes and the abrogation of the deal have been framed by Moscow as indignation at an apparent drone strike on Russia's Black Sea fleet moored in occupied Crimea. Um, Aliona, first of all, you have been in touch with friends and family in Ukraine. What have they told you about what the situation is like now? I have indeed. I've spoken to some friends in Kiev who remain very strong and convinced that it's better to go without electricity, water and now heat rather than under Russian rule. Um, I've spoken to my family yesterday in the morning, again, another morning, another news of missiles and rockets flying near my home. And this time, um, if you read on the news, there was a piece of rocket falling down in Moldova, mm. which causes some international concern. Well, the, the other um, chunk of it and s- several others have made it to the Nistat hydroelectric power plant that's um, providing for electricity for our region and a large bit of western Ukraine. Uh, so now um, my um, family and friends back home in the west of Ukraine are uh, sitting without electricity, internet potentially. It's slightly easier for people in the villages because they have autonomous uh, provision of at least water and heating. Um, but electricity remains a problem. We've obviously seen some support from um, many countries and partners um, in the world sending some provision for that and some mm. portable um, mini power plants and all the rest. But the next few days, if not weeks, are going to be extremely tough. Well, to say the very least, and just to follow that up, going without electricity or water anywhere uh, is tricky, but without heat uh, facing a Ukrainian winter... Well, imagine that. Luckily, again, uh, on this weekend, we had like 22 degrees uh, weather, so it was still quite warm. And I think uh, we're being very lucky with that, as well as um, Britain in the recent days. Um, But it is truly um, threatening for people. I think that's exactly what Putin Mm. is aiming at. And, you know, we've heard a lot about his... um, 
Aleppo um, butcher, Sorovikin, who's now in charge of the defense of Ukraine, he's the one who's responsible for all the atrocities they've caused in Syria. So we can definitely see that approach in Ukraine, just terrorizing local population to make them disheartened, to change their minds, to force government into concessions. But we are not seeing that happening. And even uh, speaking to my friends who were somewhat neutral, who maybe were not as patriotic even 10 years ago, mm. um, even now they're saying, yeah, we we're going to go cold, we're going to wear winter jackets at home, but it's way better than being under Russian rule. Um, Ivor, it is hard not to see a uh, significance to the timing of these attacks, because obviously assaulting civilian energy infrastructure, civilian infrastructure generally, is something Russia could have done at any point uh, in this attack. And they have granted that Russia probably didn't think this war was going to go on this long. But nonetheless, they have chosen to do this just as winter approaches. Yeah, well, obviously, in the immediate reason for the attacks was is retribution for the alleged um, Ukrainian attacks on the Black Sea fleet. But I'm sure that in the longer term, this is, well, to me, who's not a military strategist, but does look like an admission of failure in terms of the battlefield. They're clearly losing the military conflict. So they're turning to the civilian war. I have to say the precedents, I mean, one has 100% sympathy for Ukraine and the precedents of Russia are not good because there are very few cases of civilians being terrorised into submission. Most of the evidence, I'm thinking particularly of our parents or grandparents' experience in the Second World War in London, it just hardened resolve. Mm. And I think that if one looks at other examples, it's the same. So it's a, it's a vicious, inhumane tactic which history suggests won't work. This is something you've alluded to before, Aliona, and you, you sort of referred to it uh, just when you were talking then, that probably if you do go back a decade or so, there were quite a lot of Ukrainians, especially in the east of Ukraine, who did have a somewhat ambivalent view of their own nationality, that they lived in Ukraine but felt themselves Russian, they spoke Russian, felt attuned to Russian culture, the Russian church, perhaps mm. even the Russian government. And I get the sense there's a lot less of that now than there was. A hundred percent. And Russia as a state is doing that themselves, uh, turning their own ethnic Russians who lived in Ukraine, who, as you say, uh, were very familiar with the culture, had a family across the border, grew up uh, within the same value frame as, as Russians. Now they're all having fled to the west of the country, first of all. It's very interesting to hear feedback even from, from my family, who's hosted several families of refugees, uh, from my friends who are getting to know these, especially younger generation, uh, young entrepreneurs moving from the east of the country into the west and looking how people live. And Because um, as we discussed before going live, Ukraine is quite a big country, so the culture differs as well. And them seeing how the Westerners live, the Western Ukrainians, they've actually seen many familiarities. Mm. Um, many myths have been debunked, the ones that they've listened and they've received from the Russian propaganda too. So I think it also serves assimilation of Ukrainian nation, which is also a great tendency. Can I just pick up on what Aliona said? Because I spent several months working in the Black Sea area, Odessa, Kherson, Mikhailov, mm. a few years ago. And I was struck at the time, long before the threat of a Russian invasion. And people did tell me, I'm Russian. 
And Odessa in particular had a very strong Russian feel about it. But now, I, well, you can tell me, but I think that has long gone from those areas. And even though I suspect there's still some pro-Russian feeling in, Luther, in the... In, in the memory fades me, in the in the east. Mm. In the Black Sea areas, which is the focus of attention, there's not much pro-Russian feeling now, is there? Indeed, and especially then pro-Russian mayor Trukhanov has declared um, his allegiance to President Zelensky within the first two days of an active war in February and said, I'm done, I'm supporting Ukraine now because there was some uh, social unrest in Odessa even going back to 2000 and 14, 15. So we had various issues caused whether A, internally by cultural differences of people who have not gone through a proper assimilation process. And we can see those tendencies in many states and nations worldwide. And B, the strong influence of Russian propaganda, Russian agents of influence, be it local elites who voice several opinions. So we've gone through that process. But I think this war, as terrible as it was and as high in cost as it was, it definitely contributed to the cleansing from those elements of society and we're just building a strong Ukrainian um, solid nation. Uh, I just want to pick up finally on this, Aliona, on a point Ivor made there, and it and it is an interesting one, and it's true that c- civilian morale rarely cracks, even under the most intense pressure. I've seen it myself in various places. People find a way uh, to get on and to muddle through, but The thing that strikes me is that surely Russians of all people should understand that, given what the Soviet Union endured in in World War II, and Vladimir Putin himself, who grew up in the ruins of Leningrad. Indeed. Um, I think the history proves that uh, people have short memories, sadly, (laughs) and that the understanding of things can be heavily influenced if you keep hearing one message banging on and on and on endlessly, as Russians have um, in the 30 years of their independence uh, from Russian state TV. Um, I think Ukraine have witnessed that process very vividly because we were moving away from propaganda and we were liberalizing our media and we had various voices being heard in the public sphere, whereas Russians didn't. So it's very hard to say, but now even speaking to my friends who Russians who have fled Russia post-war or even in, in previous years from the regime, they still have quite a different understanding of things. So it's very hard to tell. Human consciousness is a complex mechanism and it's not that easy to tap into it. Well, let's move along and take a look at Israel, whose voters are beating a well-worn path to their nearest polling station today for the country's fifth general election in a bit over three years. Though Israelis will, as usual, be choosing from among a riotously diverse and chronically disputatious selection of smallish parties, this election will also present one binary choice, i.e. do we want to give Benjamin Netanyahu yet another crack at running the place or not? Um, Ivor, first of all, whatever the result turns out to be, what are the chances of Israelis going round again in another few months? Because it seems unlikely to return an absolute majority for anybody. Well, there could be um, an absolute but paper-thin majority, mm. either way, for for Netanyahu or Netanyahu, whoever co- manages to cobble together the alternative alliance. The Israeli politics, well, let me put it another way, the Israeli constitution is frankly not fit for purpose. Mm. You only need 3.5% of the vote to get represented in parliament. 
People say the Israeli definition of democracy is one man, one party. <laughs> and it does make stitching together coalitions really difficult and it does give scope for the rise of horrendous um, political perspectives to get represented and to then have sway in the parliament because of the closeness of it. So the answer to your question is probably yes. This is, what, the fifth in four years. But um, interesting things are happening. I was just in, in contact with a, a friend before we came on air who said, contrary to expectation, because you'd think after voting five times in four years, there'd be apathy. Turnout is now running at six o'clock tonight at record levels. And that has two possible and totally contradictory effects. One is the Arab population, whose turnout is always low, mm. are going to the polls in bigger numbers. Well, they, they think after the last coalition, of course, that they might have something to actually vote for. They were included in the government. Indeed. Well, one section of the Arab vote. So that's an interesting... But on the other hand, the extreme right Zionist religious party, if they're turning out people who don't usually vote, then it swings the other way. So the very long-winded answer to your question, if you're going to say who's going to win, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Aliana, Benjamin Netanyahu has uh, sort of to shack up with the religious Zionism party. Clue very much in the name there. Um, if, if he does win and does govern with the assistance of the religious Zionism party, who are, not to put too fine a point on it, a bunch of massive weirdos, um, has he made Israel more difficult for its allies to deal with? I think, A, that would be a very unfortunate um, series of events for Israel itself and definitely for the world. Um, I think history proves that nothing good ever comes out for any radical movements making it into the government or forming coalitions. Uh, being an, any extreme is not right. And, and as you rightly pointed out, it wouldn't be the greatest of coalitions because Netanyahu often explores and exploits the, the far right radical rhetoric, but if he actually goes into coalition with the radical Zionist party, that's not going to be great for Israel or international uh, support because we finally reached some sort of agreement with Ukraine even, um, with Israel trying to assist us in any possible way in this war. Um, as you've seen, Zelensky being Jewish himself has pled to get some support from Israel so many times and, and failed every time. He, he made a point of beating up on Israel quite significantly about this last week. Indeed. So um, I think it can only go down the hill from there. Even, even, even further downhill because Netanyahu is more dependent upon the Russian Jewish vote than the opposition parties, they tend to vote for parties of the right and they're a significant part of the Israeli population, which explains why even the non-Netanyahu government, I wouldn't call them left-wing at all. Quite a lot of that Russian-speaking bloc are Ukrainian by descent, though, of course. They don't necessarily think as one. I think that that's that's a fair point, but my understanding is that the the reason that the Israeli government has been very ambiguous, it has been in its support Indeed for Ukraine, so. is its awareness that its native population there's strong support for Russia. Your point is well taken, but nonetheless, that's why Israel's they're refusing to give the Ukraine the Iron Dome protection, and that's why they're ambivalent. So it's just naked political calculation, unfortunately, which demonstrates that Israel is a democracy, more or less, but is no better and no worse than any other democracy. Grubby politics wins. Well, and on that subject, I, I've, I do want to look a bit at the, I mean, extraordinary figure of Benjamin Netanyahu, who has released an autobiography uh, 
quite recently, which I'm sure is quite the wild ride because it has been a fairly eventful life. But what's your sense of what still drives him on at this point? Because Is he doing that slightly Charles de Gaulle-ish thing at this point of thinking, you know, I am the state and the state is me? Does he think there is no Israel without him? I'm not sure I would go that far. Certainly, he is a very clever politician. Mm. He has a brand, BB, um, <coughs> which he's universally known as. But I think, actually, if you look at his policies, although he uses the far right, actually, he's been quite pragmatic in the sense that he's not driven further into Palestinian territories. He has marked time on the peace process. I mean, don't get me wrong, he, this is no peacemaker, but he's not taken the sort of radical approach that some of his right-wing parties would like him to take. So he exists purely for power, Andrew. Whether actually he sees l'état et moi, the state is me, I don't think so. I just think he is an avaricious, ambitious um, demagogue, clever with it, but I think he goes no further than that. And I know it was Louis the Fourteenth who said that originally. Thank Don't you. write in. Um, just, just finally uh, on this, uh, Aliona, we, we've mentioned this in passing: uh, Israel being somewhat circumspect in the degree to which it will or will not help Ukraine. Um, Netanyahu has said he would look at it, which could mean anything. But the Iron Domes, in particular, is is what Zelensky wants. And uh, I was reading around a bit on this last week because that's what last week's Foreign Desk Explainer was about, as I'm sure all our listeners are well aware. And the reservation, or one of the reservations that might be at large um, in Israel's head, is if they let the Iron Dome technology go to Ukraine and Ukraine suffers reverses which enable the technology to fall into the hands of Russia, the technology could shortly thereafter fall into the hands of Iran. I don't think that is a credible concern of Israel because um, going back to the point that you made about Ukrainians being present, having heavy presence in Israel and in the government itself, I can see the, those tendencies even in Ukrainian politics, which, as I've said, is pragmatism at its core. And when it comes to Iron Dome, I think there were um, these statements made by Western countries before. We can't provide strong air defense. We can't provide high Mars. We can't provide heavy artillery to Ukrainians because they're going to lose the war eventually and it's all going to go to Russians. Um, we've seen that 10 months in, Ukraine is not ready, willing, or in no ways getting prepared to give up. Um, so I don't think that Iron Dome technology is necessarily going to go to Russia, and I don't think that's essentially what concerns Israel the most. Uh, first of all, to debunk the myth as well, Iron Dome would, will only solve partly mm. the problem of all the missiles and rockets flying to Ukraine because it only covers the small ones. We still need the air defense, the strongest air defense that France is providing, that Spain has contributed to, that we're expecting from the U.S. and all other countries to cover that. Certainly, Iron Dome will protect cities like Kiev, for example, or residential areas. So that would definitely contribute to saving lives. But again, I think the going back to Netanyahu, he would hold off on providing that just to still be friends with Russia, sadly. 
Aliona Livko and Ivor Gaber, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you later in the show. Now, Semaphore, the global news site started by Ben Smith, former New York Times media columnist and editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and Justin Smith, former CEO of Bloomberg Media, launched last month. Semaphore aims to address what it calls frustration around bias, polarisation and information overload, but it will take at least 10 years to get fully up and running, according to Justin Smith, who sat down with Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule. Well, Semaphore is a new global news brand that is going to strive to be two things at its core. One, incredibly, incredibly high quality. And secondly, extremely, extremely independent. And we're launching towards this objective by focusing on what we think are a range of big consumer frustrations that exist in, in the news business. Um, I, as you know, Tyler, and well, by the way, thank you for having me on. It's really great to talk to you. You're, I'm a big admirer of Monocle and in many ways, Semaphore is you know, inspired by, by parts of Monocle. But I spent my the last uh, 25 years of my career in global news media, um, from The Economist to The Atlantic to running Bloomberg most recently. And, and one of the things that I was just so, so evident when you have a front seat to this, to this industry is just how across the last five, seven, 10 years, maybe 15 years since the advent of social media, um, the news uh, consumer has, has become very, very disaffected. Uh, there are a lot of frustrations out there to, here in the US, but also in different countries around the world and even across, in cross-border sort of media. But the, the frustrations are uh, range from bias to, to polarization, all this, the distortive effects of social media the, the, the very lame way, frankly, the traditional news media responded to social media by sort of jumping into the game and going for the clicks and going for the you know, blending of news and opinion and partisanship. Um, and so it's just, it's in, in my mind, it's created a big, big, big opportunity globally to do something different, to do something new and to listen to these frustrated consumers and bring something extremely high quality, independent, transparent, um, to to the world. And so that's that's what Semaphore is going to strive to do. As you've identified, there is an enormous opportunity and and you, of course, pitch this as global. The one thing that, that strikes me, and, and this is, you know, even since, you, you know, we haven't talked for a while, but I think we touched on this last time, is that, of course, there is an Anglosphere news agenda. There is an agenda which is set in is set in Washington and New York, and 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 then it's sort of picked up in London and Toronto and Melbourne and Sydney and elsewhere. And there is a resistance to that as well, Justin, where the rest of the world is like actually. America's problems are not Poland's problems, but because they're so front and center in in even some of the media outlets where where you've been, that also it's 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 the, on the part of lazy newsrooms. These get picked up, so. American struggles then become global struggles when actually people are much more concerned about many other things living in Krakow and, and Warsaw. So how do you square that? Because I think there is this sort of pushback or resistance to the American way of, of doing things and certainly the American way of looking at things where people say, actually, the whole world is not actually a bunch of liberal arts colleges in Maine. <laughs> Well, I mean, let let me provide some personal context to that. I mean, I'm half English, half American. I was uh, raised in Paris, and French and, and and French culture was my sort of first place I I came to know the world. Lived extensively in Africa, lived in Asia, China, Hong Kong for ten years, 
And so I've spent my life really actually as a sort of a non, a non-American, half American living, living around the world. And the, one of the sort of the, the, the core premises of, of Semaphore is, you know, I started my career in 1993 at the International Herald Tribune in Hong Kong, which had a circulation at the time of about 200,000 subscribers. It was effectively sort of a news, newspaper for the whole world that was delivered to American expatriates. The FT also was sort of hanging around at that time, or maybe more than hanging around, maybe in its prime, with maybe 100,000, 150,000 subscribers. The Economist was in its prime in the 90s. And but yet that this audience of cross-border English language news consumers was really a, a sort of a Western expatriate audience primarily. And it was sort of bankers from McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and, you know, the folks living in the business class sections of airplanes crisscrossing the world. 30 years later, uh, you, th- you think about the global English language news consuming audience. It has just exploded. It's exploded because of the way that the global demographics have changed and the rise of this global middle professional class, which is, you know, which is on the march in the Middle East and on the march in Africa and on the march in ASEAN and, and India and all around the all around the world. And of course, in, in parts of Europe and Northern Europe, et cetera. And, and so, but yet this, this new kind of rising global professional class does not actually have a sort of a unifying source of, of cross-border global news. That was Semaphore's Justin Smith speaking to Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brulé. You are listening to The Daily. Still with me are Aliona Hlifko and Ivor Gaber. Now, it is not necessary to be a Scarlet Berry-wearing owner of Che Guevara posters to note that there are entities which turn a profit from armed conflict and believe it to be in debatable taste. Among those who hold this view, it turns out, is US President Joe Biden. Biden has noted that American oil companies in particular are cleaning up as a partial conflict consequence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Last week, ExxonMobil reported earnings in the third quarter of 2022 alone of 19.7 billion US dollars, or a little over three times Ukraine's entire military budget for 2020. I think those maths are right. Please write in if I've missed a zero somewhere. Uh, President Biden has floated the possibility now of a windfall tax. Ivor, would that be roundabout fair enough at this point? It's a very interesting debate they're having in the United States because we're having exactly the same one in the UK for exactly the same reason that oil companies only today, BP declared profits billions above, not billions above, but significantly above forecasts. Um, There is a form of windfall tax at the moment here, but it's clearly inadequate compared to the vast profits they're making. Is it fair? Is it right? Well, look, at a time of economic stringency, um, what is the phrase? The broadest shoulders should bear the most weight. I think the oil company's shoulders are pretty broad. And is it right? I think at this time, absolutely spot on. Of course, there is the minor issue of the midterm elections coming up, which might have influenced Joe Biden. But, you know, that would be ungracious. That would be to suggest that he's a politician looking for votes. I mean, he is a politician looking for votes and he will have seen the same polls everyone else has, which note a relationship between his approval ratings heading in one direction while prices at the petrol pump head in the other. But nonetheless, Aliona, he went in pretty hard here. He called these oil companies war profiteers. Is that entirely fair? 
I was going to say one week ahead of elections. Um, <laughs> that is probably a good statement to make um, by an, a political actor, first and foremost. But I think similarly to politicians, people should take advantage of the elections coming up and actually force uh, their representatives into doing something about it and tackling the cost of living crisis that is now sweeping not just across the US, but the whole of Europe, including the UK. Uh, so certainly a good time to bring that up. Uh, whether it's fair to call them that, well, we can also see many politicians who have been war profiteering and getting their points and scores, um, covering up their scandals, etc. Not going to name any names here. Um, but certainly we've learned even throughout the history that there are entities who benefit off of wars immensely and those need to be looked at. Um, either the oil companies, and I'm not I'm not shilling for them here, I, I'm merely trying to take a somewhat contrary view, might well point out that the UK, for example, currently taxes North Sea oil and gas firms at circa 65%, which is less than Norway does, but nonetheless, uh, it's still a reasonable chunk of their earnings. I mean, I would be annoyed... It's, this is what I mean, I don't really know what to think in that I would personally be annoyed if I was being taxed at 65%, but I also like to think that if I was clearing $6 billion a month, I might take a slightly more sanguine view. I think the clue is in the word windfall, that in normal <coughs> times, the oil companies in the North Sea, as we're discussing, was getting 65%. But in the last... Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, oil prices at the pumps and elsewhere where oil is consumed, have shot up, but the cost of production has not. Mm. So these are, I won't say unearned profits, but these are profits they weren't expecting to make. So, yeah, no, nobody's going to put their hand up and say, yes, I'd like to pay more tax. But I think most people in the United States and the UK would recognise that in the circumstances, this is a very fair form of taxation. I mean, and Leona... You're quite right in pointing out, and indeed you both did, that Joe Biden is well aware that the midterms are a week today and was probably speaking accordingly. But that aside, is there perhaps a more creative way this could be done, like that that perhaps a windfall tax could be ring-fenced into investing in better and cleaner energy so we have to, in future, spend less of our own money propping up really thoroughly unpleasant people who just happen to be sitting on a lot of oil? Well, being an intellectual individual, certainly, Andrew, that would be your suggestion. And I'm not just saying that because I'm being hosted by you in the studio. But when it comes to the elections, and I've had the honor or, or should I say, displeasure to be on the campaign side of a political mm. party in Ukraine for 13 years. And I know that the simpler the message is, the better it settles with the people, especially one week ahead of elections. Um, so it needs to be as primitive and clear as it can be. And putting more taxes on evil oil companies is as clear <laughs> as it will get in one week. There's a long-term tradition of that in America. Big Oil Rockefeller, um, who was the, the villain of the piece, political career, suffered because he was associated with that. Roosevelt made a great thing. So he, Biden is playing a tune that seems to resonate. Well, moving along, in several of the world's nations, some or other attention-seeking custodian of the language maintains a Word of the Year title, which annually ennobles some neologism that appears to some prevailing stuff up. Here in the UK, that entity is the Collins Dictionary. In 2020, they chose lockdown for obvious reasons. Last year, it wasn't a word, but an acronym, NFT, the 21st century equivalent of magic beans, except that it might be reasonably retorted that Jack's magic 
magic bean sprouted a stalk, which enabled him to loot a giant's treasure. This year, the 2022 word of the year is, and it is hard to disagree too much, permacrisis. Iva, Iva, do you like permacrisis? That seems to me a a portmanteau, if you will, of permanent and crisis. I think it's a terrific word. It (coughs) describes what's going on. But I have to say, this is almost the first time I've heard it. This idea that... Yeah, I haven't heard it either. Lockdown, who could escape it? Even NFT. But I'm very puzzled by this list because I've been going through it. I was going to ask you if you ever heard of it. I've never heard of it no, before. Well, I mean, it may say something about the circles I live in or work in or generally travel in, but I, I have usually heard the same yeah. sentiment expressed um, via a word so, that rhymes with fluster duck. So, well, it, I was going to nominate that as my <laughs> word of the year, but I wasn't going to be so e- elegant in my mispronunciation. Shall but, we have a vote right now? I mean, <laughs> Aliona, I don't know whether you are excited or disappointed that one word that missed out, uh, and it is a proper noun rather than a word, is, is Kiev. Uh, the, the, no, 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 the, f- forgive me. It's in the list. It's in the list, but it didn't win. Mm. It so, didn't win, it, no. so it missed out at that level. It was it was nominated but did not win, and as of this year's British Podcast Awards, I know that feeling well. <laughs> not, not, not that I'm bitter. Three oh, times. Um, anyway, uh, but Kiev, which was, until February, largely known uh, outside Ukraine as Kiev, and mm. the world has kind of got with the programme on that. That is very heartwarming, and I think that comes um, to 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 support that point. That that goes to so many words that are actually Ukrainian rather than Russian, and it's understandable because Soviet Union existed longer in people's mentality than independent Ukraine for the last thirty years. So, it's reassuring to see that Kyiv has almost made it to the word of the year. I, similarly to Ira, have not heard of permacrisis, although I can agree it's kind of relevant, but I would go (laughs) with the rhyme for fluster duck as well. (coughs) Uh, There were a couple of others uh, which are in more common currency. Sports washing, though, it didn't just come into currency this year. That's been doing the rounds for a while. Caroleon was a word we all had to learn because that that describes the age of of King Charles. Those of us who weren't historians Mm. had to learn it, Andrew. I'm (laughs) impressed that you're describing it. As an intellectual, Andrew, as I just heard you describe, I would have thought... For for the first and last time, for which I am grateful, Aliona, thank you. I I will be keeping the download of this episode. Can I'll I just make two, two observations? Firstly, a word I've never heard of at all, splooting. No, nor have I. And secondly, an interesting word, but one completely inappropriate. They talk about quiet quitting, which is an interesting... Again, it's two the, words the practice as well. of doing no... Thank you. <laughs> pedant to the last. The practice of doing no more work than one is contractually obliged to do reminds me, if you'll forgive me very briefly, I was working some time ago in Bosnia-Herzegovina and I was in a office of a government office and everybody, no, everybody was sitting around where nobody was there, so to speak, and I said, what's happening? And they said, well, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. <laughs> and I think that's a better definition that than quiet quitting. Uh, that, I think, was a variation on an old Soviet joke as well, described describing uh, the employment conditions in the USSR. Uh, There is a a related uh, development in language today, which is that a study by Boffins uh, has has confirmed the medical and psychological benefits of swearing, which we all very nearly did just a few minutes ago. I mean, we probably shouldn't because this is a family programme. But, Aliona, what do you think? Do you think that swearing is actually good for us or are they basically trying to scientifically justify you know, frankly, unsavoury behaviour here. The, the, the line is that the, the part of the brain that produces swearing is not where our usual language comes from, that it, it, it's more reflexive and therefore possibly even somewhat purer. 
I think even before uh, this extraordinary finding of British and Swedish researchers has been revealed to the world, I've read somewhere that it kind of alleviates the tension when you curse and sometimes it is advised uh, to use some way of some sort of profanity just to not internalize all of your frustration, which I can see people do quite regularly. Personally, I could never see myself cursing too much. I think I was brought up in somewhat different circumstances in my family, not in Ukrainian and Russian. I can't really see myself do that. That sounds way too brutal. When I moved to England, I must say I started using English profanity more and more. Well, see, this is what I wanted to ask about, because it has been my experience that I, I don't speak Russian or Ukrainian or any Eastern European languages, so I don't know what the native curses sound like. But I do think that English language swearing rendered in Eastern European accents sounds fantastic. <laughs> they, 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 they just they suit each other really well. There's something about the sort of rolling, lugubrious tones uh, of the Slavic accents which really embraces English curses. Well, I'm happy to enlighten you when we're <laughs> off air. <laughs> um, Ivor? Yes, I, I've, um, I do tend to swear, but the only two times that I find swearing is effective is one, when I'm trying to get my home printer to work. Oh, yeah, that's what printers are for, though. And, and it does work, you know. And Your printer works? Only if you swear you at it. You should charge admission. Only swear at it. And the other is when a, 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 a biased and blind referee has awarded a penalty against my team, which my team never fouls. And just occasionally I swear at the man in the centre because he shouldn't have awarded penalty. But other than that, my swearing is totally gratuitous. Does it do me any good? I doubt it. Does my wife like it? No. It's one of my many failings in her eyes. See, well, that's a partial answer to the question I wanted to ask you both in closing. And obviously, I have no frame of reference for this because my fellow Australians are, are famous uh, for the politesse of our language and the, and the just, you know, extraordinary rarity with which we ever curse or profane and anyone who's visited australia will be able to vouch that you just you just don't hear it uh, we're, we're an extremely extremely polite people um, i wanted to ask you each in turn and i will start with you aliona what was the last thing you can remember swearing at uh, you, don't, you don't have to tell us what the word was. i'll just say it was several emails at work today <laughs> <laughs> and ivor Liz Truss's resignation speech as British Prime Minister after 22 days or six weeks when she made it sound like she's been there for six years with a string of achievements to her name, I said, for something's sake, get a grip. You haven't sworn since then. That was like two weeks ago. That's, That's an astonishing accomplishment. I, well, my statement was as true as yours was about Australian... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, in my case, probably the last thing I swore at was this script. Um, but that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today. Eliana Hlifko and Ivor Gaber, also to Tyler Brule, who we heard from in the middle of the show. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Listener.